And now it is time to turn our hearts to the Word of God, so I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and we're going to reside in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 2 today. 2 Samuel chapter 2, and I want to speak to you for the next little while about a kingdom in conflict. A kingdom in conflict, 2 Samuel chapter 2. After a 40-year reign as Israel's first king, Saul and three of his sons tragically die on the battlefield of Mount Geboa. His body is desecrated by the Philistines who decapitate him and hang his body on the walls of Bethshean as if to say, our God Baal is greater than the Hebrew God Jehovah. David is so overcome by grief, he writes a song in chapter 1 called the Song of the Bow. It is a funeral dirge in honor of King Saul. He was not happy about his death, although Saul had tried to kill him on many occasions. He took no joy, no pleasure in the death of Saul, but he grieved and he was brokenhearted over the death of Israel's first king, King Saul. When Saul passes off the pages of Scripture... David steps on the pages of Scripture and becomes the dominant personality for re the remainder of this book. All the way back in chapter 1, or excuse me, in 1 Samuel, I should say, uh, you will find that the prophet Samuel came to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. And he says, God has chosen one of your sons to be the next king of Israel. One by one, Jesse's sons parade in front of the prophet Samuel. Samuel looks them over and he says, no, it's not this one. No, it's not this one. No, it's not this one. All the seven sons of Jesse parade in front of Samuel to no avail. And Samuel says, do you have any more? And Jesse says, oh, yes, I have one more son. He's out tending the sheep. They go get David. They bring him in. And the Bible says that Samuel says, this is God's anointed. He anoints David as king of Israel, and the scripture says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So although he was anointed as king as a 15-year-old teenager, it would be some 15 years before he would actually take the throne. And when he finally became king, the Bible says that God would use him to lead the nation of Israel by the integrity of his heart and by the skillfulness of his hand. He took the nation of Israel from a nation that was smoldering in the rubble of Saul's failure as a king. He used Jerusalem or, or dedicated Jerusalem as Israel's capital, moved the Ark of the Covenant to the capital city of Jerusalem. He expanded Israel's border. He built their military, and he led them to become the most prosperous nation that part of the world had ever seen. In fact, it was a time known as the golden ages of Israel's history. It was a time when David would pass the, the kingdom down to his son Solomon, that the Bible would say about Solomon's kingdom, that gold flowed like water. So God would use this young man, David, in a great way. As a young man, he stood in the valley of Elah, took a stone and a sling, and he killed the giant Goliath. And now for the next 40 years, God is going to lead him and use him to be Israel's second king. No doubt, Israel's greatest king. But David did not inherit a united kingdom, he inherited a fractured 
kingdom. So what I want to draw to your attention today as we move through this is first of all I want us to look at the kings who battle for control. In this fractured kingdom in which David inherits there are two kings, David and another guy that are going to struggle for control over Israel proper. So you're going to see first of all the kings who battle for control. Uh, The first one of course we're familiar with his name is David. The next guy, I would venture to say, we're probably not very familiar with. His name was Ishbosheth. Now, when's the last time you found that name come up in your daily quiet time? These are two men, David, whom the Bible says is a man after God's own heart, and Ishbosheth, whom the Bible says his name means uh, man of shame. These two guys are going to compete. For control of Israel. Let's read about how this story unfolds beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2. Again, it's after Saul's death. David and his men are gathered in Hebron. Verse 3 says, And his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, Blessed be ye of the Lord that you have showed this kindness to your Lord even unto Saul. And now the Lord show kindness and truth to you. And I also will requite you this kindness because you have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead and also notice this the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So from the time that David was anointed when he was 15 until he takes the reins of leadership It has been 15 years. He's now 30 years old. And during that time is the time that he killed Goliath. It is during that time that he uh, serves in the court of King Saul, becomes Saul's armor bearer, plays the harp for King Saul. It is also during this time, about four years or so, toward the end of this final 15 years, that David is running from Saul as he's hiding out in the caves of En Gedi. On this particular day, as David is anointed as king now, and now he's ready to take the throne, he is not going to be the king over the entire providence of Israel. Because he doesn't inherit this united kingdom, but a fractured kingdom. Notice what happens in verse number 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host. This is, this is Saul's military general. This is Saul's secretary of defense, if you will. Abner was fiercely loyal to Saul. And when he heard about Saul's death, he was going to set up one of Saul's son, in fact, the only remaining son of King Saul, Ishbosheth to be the next king of Israel. Notice, Abner the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and he brought him over to Mahanam. Verse 9. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Ahasuerites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So instead of swearing allegiance to David, Abner says, my allegiance is still to the late king Saul. 
My allegiance is to make sure one of Saul's heirs becomes the next king. So he sets up this puppet king, Ishbosheth, uh, to rule over a portion of Israel as a puppet king, and he and David are going to have conflict over who really controls Israel. In fact, you will find later on as we read, Ishbosheth serves his territory from some two and a half years, David, or two years, David, some seven and a half years. I want to show you a, a brief picture of a map that will help orient you as to what was taking place. Uh, when you look up here on the screen, you will see, um, of course, uh, this is what Israel looked like at the time of 2 Samuel. Everything in the green is the northern tribes that was under the control of the military general Abner, who, by the way, became the most powerful man in Israel after Saul's death. He controlled all of this region. It was Abner who took Ishbosheth back across the Jordan River, right here at River Jabbok, and it is there that he determines that Ishbosheth is going to be the new king of Israel. Meanwhile, if you will look down in the uh, rose-colored section, you see Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Hebron and King uh, Ziglag and Beersheba. This is the southern kingdom in which David was made the king. So now you understand and you can see the battle, the conflict, if you will, of these two kingdoms. Now you wouldn't think there would be a conflict because for 400 years when the Hebrews were in the slave and the brick pits of the slavery of Egypt, they asked God to, to free them and to get them to the promised land. And as soon as God frees them and under the leadership of Joshua leads them through the conquest of Canaan, the land is divided up, then they turn on each other. And the Bible says there's a great war between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Abner and Ishbath against David and his commander Joab. Look in verse 10. If you're listening, say amen. Ishbath, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years. The house of Judah, that was the pink area that I showed you on the map, followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years, six months. So it had been 15 years from the time Samuel anointed him until it was time to take the reins of leadership in the southern kingdom. He had to serve in that southern kingdom for another seven and a half years before finally he was king of the entire unified kingdom of Israel. So it was some, what is that, 20, 21 and a half, 22 years that he waited for God to work in his life and fulfill the promise that he had given him that he would indeed make him the king of Israel. So what do we have? We have the northern tribes warring with the southern tribes. We have Ishbosheth fighting against David. If you go to chapter 3, look in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul, that's the northern kingdoms, and the house of David. But David became stronger and stronger and the house of Saul weaker and weaker. Many Bible scholars view that passage this way. That Ishbosheth and Abner represent the carnal nature of mankind. The fleshly desires, the fleshly appetite that we all struggle with. That David represents the spiritual side of mankind. 
David, a man after God's own heart. Ishbosheth, a man of shame. That's what his name means. David, his name means beloved. And he was a man whose heart was hot for God. But on the other side, you have this conflict, this kingdom conflict of Ishbosheth, whose name is a man of shame. So if David represents the spiritual man, Ishbosheth, the, the natural man, there's this war that goes on the heart and life of every believer. Paul said it this way in Romans 7. He said, the good things I want to do, I don't do them. I got good intentions, flesh is willing, or spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, the good things I want to do, I don't do them. But the bad things I don't want to do, that's what I do. You ever find yourself like that, right? We've all experienced that internal struggle, haven't we? That internal conflict, that internal battle. He says, the good things I know I should do and want to do and desire to do, I don't do them. The bad things I try to refrain from doing, lo and behold, he said, that's what I find myself doing. And then he said, oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of flesh? You see, during the days of, of the Roman Empire, one of the punishments was for, for prisoners was to, was to chain a, a dead corpse to the back of a prisoner. And they had to walk around with this decomposing corpse on their back. And Paul uses that imagery. And he says, who would deliver me from this body of death? Talking about his flesh that he'd just like to get rid of it because it continually pulls him back to do what is wrong when his spiritual part wants to do what is right. So, if indeed, and that's, I believe that is a practical application for that passage, that if David represents the spiritual part, Ishboth the natural part, it stands to reason the one we feed will be the one that is dominant. We feed the spiritual man, we'll grow spiritually to spiritual maturity. If we give in to the carnal desires and the appetites of our fallen nature that pulls us away from God, then eventually that will become the dominant factor in our lives. So, having said that, that indeed this does represent the struggle we all face, I think there's another application. That this was a long war. That David and his kingdom grew stronger. That Ishboth and his kingdom grew weaker. The ultimate battle is this. It is a decision. Do we walk as a man after God's own heart or do we walk after the king of shame, Ishboth? Do we live our lives in a way that be pleasing to God or in a way that satisfies our fallen nature? You know, it is true for me and you that we struggle with that. It is true that churches can struggle with that. It is true that nations and countries can struggle with that. Do you know, I believe, compared to the rest of the world, that you and I live here in the good old United States of America, we live in the Garden of Eden compared to the rest of the world. Now, I've been a lot of places, and there's no place I'd rather live than here I was talking to someone the other day, unless it was the nation of Israel. I think I might like to do that. And um, uh, I told him, I think I'd like to be buried there. But Tina would probably never come see me if I was. She may not come see me anyway. But uh, her new husband may not let her do that. But anyway, uh, other than Israel, this is the greatest place in the world. I mean, we have a military second to none that protects our borders. We have the freedom to assemble and worship. We have the freedom to speak our mind, to petition the government, 
We have the freedom for religion. We have freedoms and liberties that much of the world knows little or nothing about. And we are indeed blessed as a nation. But do you know I am saddened to say that today, just like Israel in David's early reign, our country as well is a divided kingdom. A kingdom in conflict. Today, there is a battle for control in our country. A civil war, if you will. This is not a civil war like we saw in the 1860s, but it's a civil war of values, a civil war of morality, a civil war of what is right and what is wrong. And when the dust settles and the war is over, our country will either prosper with the blessings and the favor of God, or we will suffer the reproach of having turned our back upon God. Time will tell what will happen to our nation. But I know Proverbs says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Here's my prayer for our country. That those people, the church, you and I who know the Lord, that we will indeed be people who have a heart for God and hunger to know God and to love God and to serve God, and that we would grow stronger and stronger, and the rest of the world that doesn't know the Lord, that live for the king of shame, would grow weaker and weaker and weaker. That the influence of Christ would be made known around the world, that he'd become even more famous, and that the cross would be declared in every corner of the world to every tribe and every people group and every language and every tongue around the world. You see, God has given us that mandate, hasn't he? To carry the gospel to the ends of the world, to the ends of the earth. And our prayer is that we'll be strong in doing that and that God would bless us and that we would grow by doing that. And in so doing that the influence of Satan in this world would get weaker and weaker and the influence of our great God would grow stronger and stronger. But ultimately, we have to decide what kind of country do we want to live in? Now listen, I recognize that not all of our founding fathers were exemplary in the lifestyles that they chose to live. Most of them, or certainly many of them, were not exemplary in their lifestyles. But having said that, I do believe that our country, as a country, was founded on the Judeo-Christian values and principles that are taught in the Word of God. It doesn't mean that we don't have scars, that we did everything right. I mean, we have some terrible aspects of our history in our country. But I'm saying as a whole, I believe that it was to, to be built on the principles of, of, of a Judeo-Christian standard and value. Some of the words that are enshrined on our government buildings, listen to this for example. On the Jefferson Memorial, the words of Thomas Jefferson say, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed conviction that these liberties are a gift from God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That's enshrined on the Jefferson Memorial. How about this on the U.S. Capitol building? These are just a couple. Psalm 16:1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. The Library of Congress, Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? But listen, there is a segment 
Unfortunately, it is a growing segment in our country that would love nothing more than to sandblast those words off of every monument in our nation today. And not just to sandblast it there, but to remove any reference to God from the public square whatsoever. My prayer is those voices get weaker and we get stronger. Amen, church? My prayer, yes, you can, you can say amen to that. My prayer is in this great civil war of values that the devil does not gain one inch of ground that he does not take one more person, that he doesn't have one more bit of influence, but that he gets weaker and weaker. And as God's people, we grow stronger and stronger. And in so doing, we take what we see around us and, and the philosophies of our country, the ethics, the topics that we are faced with, the issues that come into our living room every night. How do we interpret those in light of the big picture? Every Every philosophy or ethic in which we encounter, we have to look at it through a biblical worldview. And what I mean by a biblical worldview is we look at it not through what the six o'clock news media commentary says about it, not what social media says about it, but we look at it at every issue through the lens, what does God say about it? What does God's word teach about this issue? And when we see it from God's perspective and from God's word, what that does is that builds a resolve and a strength in us because we know it is not secular humanistic thinking, but it is the will and the word of God. So we want to look at life through a biblical world view. Having said that, it seems as though, and I know this is not true, this is my own failing, okay? It seems as though sometimes, if you're like me, if you watch the news, and I can only take it a little bit at a time, but then I have to fast from it because I get my blood pressure goes up. But um, uh, sometimes I, I see things happen on the news and I think, man, the armies of Ishbosheth and the kings of Ishbosheth are getting stronger and stronger. And those who are after God's own heart are getting weaker and weaker. Now, I know that's not the case because, listen, the Bible says the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Isn't that right? But still, sometimes we're so inundated with the bad news, so inundated with, with um, the liberal mindset of our fallen world that we think this war, this conflict, this kingdom conflict that is going on, that we're on the losing side. But friends, I want you to know we're not on the losing side. We're on the winning side. I've read the book, right? I know how it ends. And we're on the winning side, not the losing side. There are a couple of things I jotted down that happens when Ishbosheth, the king of shame, reigns. Number one, you might want to jot this down. When the king of shame reigns, he leads a kingdom where hypersensitive people are offended at anything and everything. Have you ever seen that anything to beat that in your life in our country today? You're afraid to say anything about anything because you never know who's going to be offended about what. But when the king of shame rules... He rules a group that are hypersensitive and offended about everything. One anonymous writer writes these words. He says, in today's political correct environment, you have to be so careful to keep from offending anyone, we all might have to give reports like this fourth grader who reported on the origins of the Thanksgiving holiday. And this is what the fourth grader wrote in order to keep from offending anyone. The pilgrims came here seeking freedom from you know what? When they landed, they gave thanks to 
you-know-who. And because of them, we can worship each Sunday, you-know-where. <laughs> Isn't that sad? But yet, that seems to be where we are as a culture. And that's what happens when the king of shame reigns. Secondly, when the king of shame reigns, he lends, or he, he, uh, when he leads, he f- has a kingdom filled with people with a victim mentality that says, I am entitled to what you have earned. I am entitled to what you have earned, and it is a sense of entitlement. It reminds me of a story of a, of a, of a guy who was walking down the street and he bumps into an old friend of his that he hadn't seen in a long time. And his old friend is so forlorn looking, so sad looking. And his buddy says to him, hey man, what's the, what's the matter? Why are you so down? Why are you so sad? And the, and, the, and the man began to tell him, he said, well, it's like this. He said, about three weeks ago, I had an aunt who died and she left me $45,000. The guy thought, well, that's great. Why are you sad? And he said, well, two weeks ago, I had an uncle die, and he left me $85,000. Well, that's even better, so why are you so sad? He said, well, last week, I had a a great aunt that I didn't even know. She died, and she left me a quarter of a million dollars. And he said, then why are you so sad? And he said, because this week, nobody died. Now listen, isn't that the way entitlement (laughs) works? One minute we're thankful. One minute we're grateful. But the next minute, there's that built-in expectation. That's what happens when the king of shame reigns. Isn't that right? There is a victim mentality. There is also, when the king of shame reigns, there is a kingdom filled with division toward the human family. You ever seen our country any more divided than we are now? We are divided by race, by rich, by poor, by the oppressors, by the oppressed, by the victims, by the persecutor. What we really see played out in our culture today is a world that is a reflection of the evil that exists in the human heart. And the evil heart that follows when Ishbosheth, the king of shame, has his way in the world. I was talking with someone earlier this week about a topic you will hear more and more of in weeks and months and years to come. It's called critical race theory, or it used to be called just critical theory. If you're not familiar with that, it basically says it's a belief system, an ideology, that America at its core is racist, that our that our laws are racist, that our judicial system is racist, that our financial system is racist, that, that everybody and, and every system in our culture is racist. I know we have racist people in our country, and every country has racist people in, our, in their country, but I, I do not believe that America, in our heart, especially with the number of Christians that are supposed to be in this country, I do not believe and I cannot swallow that all of our institutions are designed by powerful white people to keep everybody else down. Do you know, listen, as Christians, as Christians, listen, we don't see skin color. Amen, church? 
As Christians, we don't judge one another by the amount of pigmentation that is in a person's skin. But as Christians, we know that every individual is created in the image of God. Do you know when you go back and read the Genesis account of creation and you look at the creation of Adam and Eve, God never one time talks about their skin color, does he? He never talks about their ethnicity. He doesn't say they were Hebrew, they were Semitic, they were black, they were... He never says any of that. Just that he created them in his image. Listen, racism didn't enter the world and the human condition until after the fall. And when the fall came, man's heart was bent away from God and away from one another. And when we look at life now as Christians, we can see a plethora of problems, but here's how we have to see all the problems in life. That in reality, there's only one problem, and that is the sin problem in this world. And there is only one solution for the sin problem, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who can change lives, who can, yes, who can change hearts and lives and who can transform us and keep us from being whom Ishbosheths of life want us to be. Occasionally I'll have someone ask me, Pastor Darrell, what do you think about the Black Lives Matter movement? Now listen, I know to be politically correct, I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm much more interested in being biblically correct than politically correct. My response is to be biblically correct Sure, black lives matter, absolutely, but listen, I want you to know every single life matters in God's eyes. Every single life matters. Listen, y'all going to preach me to death today. I want you to know they're going to preach me to death. But every single life matters from the womb to the elderly person in the nursing home. Every single life matters. Yes, it matters. Yes, it makes a difference. Yes, every single person is important. But to say that you're a racist if you don't support the movement itself, listen, and the movement itself is actually antithetical to the gospel. Because again, as Christians, we're not divided by race. What happens at the cross? The cross, the ground is level. And all of us in our individuality come to the cross and we find forgiveness and we become part, listen, of the family of God, right? And we don't look at each other by race, but as brothers and sisters. In fact, John in the book of Revelation writes about it. He says in Revelation 7, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes, people and tongues, standing before the throne and the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That is from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, everybody is welcome to the family of God. You see, that's what people after God's heart do. We unite around the cross and we grow stronger and stronger. And those who like Ishboth follow the king of shame and the house of shame look for ways to divide us and ways to separate us. Do you know the last words of Jesus we call the Great Commission? He said, go into all the world Teach all nations and baptize all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's the great commission. If God wasn't interested in every race, he wouldn't send his people to every corner of the world for a harvest to bring them into his forever family. 
So what happens when Ishbath reigns is this long war, this kingdom conflict. When he reigns, he struggles to get stronger and stronger. And God wants us to get stronger and the Ishbath to get weaker. Do you remember I told you that when you read the creation account of Adam and Eve, you find nothing about their ethnicity, but you do find plenty about their gender. We live in a country today, unfortunately, that says that your gender can be anything that you want it to be, regardless of what biology has to say about it. And you can identify in any way, and I'm not, I'm not throwing rocks, and I don't want this to come across like I'm hateful. I have no hate in my heart at all. And I love everybody, and God loves everybody. But listen, I would say, I would say the great tragedy in life is to, not, not, is to fail to love someone enough to tell them the truth. Wouldn't that be the great tragedy in life? And the truth is God has created man in his image. And in that image, if we follow him, we will be the most fulfilled and the most uh, satisfied. But if we get away from God and we live our lives to the world, I want you to know we will be the most miserable, unhappy person searching for satisfaction under every rock and behind every bush. And we'll try everything in the world to fix the gnawing down in our heart that can only be repaired by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, so in this culture, our culture says your gender is whatever you want it to be. In 2017, the Oxford English Dictionary added the term woke to its pages. We hear that word more and more, woke. Woke ideology is a belief system that places paramount ethical value on gender identity markers. Race, sexual orientation, gender identity. Gender sensitivity training teachers, uh, teaches that gender identity, not biology, defines the real person. So much so that many of our universities now will no longer use personal pronouns he and she, but the binary pronouns z, as of not to offend anyone. We live in a culture where now policies are certainly in place where male athletes can compete in the same sporting event with a female athlete. Think about the tragedy of that, a female who's worked all of her life and trained all of her life at her craft to be the best and suddenly she has to run a race or she has to lift weights or she has to compete with a man who identifies as a woman and he's physically stronger how how irrational is that how upside down is that but that's what happened when the king of shame reigns is it not that's what happened when ishbath goes haywire Superman. Who could find anything wrong with Superman? Man, his only, his only weakness was kryptonite. A man's man. His motto is truth and justice in the American way. But now DC Comics has Superman's son, John Kent. He's bisexual. Lois Lane is bisexual. And his motto is now truth and justice and a better tomorrow. It's not going to be a better tomorrow if the ish boss of this world have their way. It's only going to be a better tomorrow 
if people after God's own heart see that we're in a kingdom conflict and we want to get stronger and stronger and stronger. When Ishbath reigns, there's confusion about what's good. Evil is called good and good is called evil. Do you know, listen carefully, and I'm going to close in about an hour. <laughs> listen, listen. The United States of America is the number one producer of pornography in the world. Two-thirds of all porn sites are hosted in California, 4.2 million domain names. Incredible, isn't it? To produce it, to market it, to sell it, to view it, to digest it, comes under the banner of freedom of expression. But God help us to speak out against it or it becomes hate speech or hateful speech. In our government, there's irresponsible stewardship, and I'm going to get off the soapbox. I try to preach expositional, but this is so pertinent to where we live. My family, nor your family, nor this church, nor this government, nor any institution can continue to spend more money than we make and let that continue very long. It's irresponsible, and it's irresponsible for our government. So that's enough about those kings who battle for control. Ishbosheth, David, the kings who battle for control. I want us to close by talking about the king who controls the battle. He's sovereign, he's the Lord of the universe. This king is Jesus. In fact, turn over a couple of pages to chapter 7. Chapter 7, look in verse 12. Look at this promise that God makes to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When the days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, that is when you die, I will set up seed after you which shall proceed out of your bowels. Now look at this. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's that word? Forever. That through the, the, the lineage of David that there would come a king who would have not a temporary reign, but an eternal reign. And I want you to know this king is none other than the Lord Jesus. The angel said to Mary, when he told her that she was going to give birth to the Son of God, he said that he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. There may be a lot of kings in this old fallen world of ours that believe that they are in a battle for control. But I want you to know, my king is in control of the battle. He is king of all kings, and he is Lord of lords. And there is that promise that one day when he returns, that he will set up this eternal kingdom where men will beat their swords into plowshares or spears into pruning hooks. War will never be mentioned again, and we will rule and reign with the king of this universe. He is the king who controls the battle. Remember, and we're going to close, I promise. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And the disciples came to him one day, and they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? 
Do you remember what Jesus said? I'm going to ask that we put it on the screen. When they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? This is what he told them. Listen, in this world, it'll never be fixed till the Prince of Peace comes. This world's broken, sinful. But there is coming the king of this universe who will put all things in order. And he tells us, pray this way. And this is how I want us to close out our service today, is I want us to, to pray this to God, all right? Let's stand up right where we are right now. And this is, this is what Jesus said. This is how we're to pray. And you can pray this. This is a prayer, okay? You can pray this with your eyes open. But let's pray it, okay? You ready? Say it loud. Here we go. Because we want to grow stronger and stronger, right? Let's say it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thrilled with who you are as our king. Lord, as the only sovereign in this universe, forgive us when we fail to remember that. I ask now, Lord, as we have this time of invitation and we just simply invite people to make decisions, there may be someone here today and their king is entertainment or their king is their, their occupation or their king is their job or their king is another person. God, help us today to say no Yours is the kingdom. You're my king. And Lord, I want to serve you with my life. And I want to grow stronger and stronger and let my light so shine in this world that others would, uh, would be drawn to you. So God, take this invitation. There may be folk here today that have never been saved who want to come and say, Pastor Daryl, I want to be saved today. Maybe others who want to come and say, I want to unite with our church, we are church family. Or others who just want to come and pray. Take this invitation and use it in a way that will honor you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen.